Today on the I-5 corridor, the Ducks keep winning, the Blazers are in a funk, and Kyle Bonagura from ESPN stops by to discuss his behind-the-scenes feature on what happened with Nick Rolovich at Washington State. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. Tyson Alger here, joined by Aiden. This is the I-5 Corridor podcast. It is Thursday, October 28th. The Ducks play Colorado here in two days. They are still in the top 10. They still only have one loss, and we still don't really know what to make of this team, but, you know, we're here. They're going to keep playing. Aiden, how you doing, man? (laughs) I'm I'm doing good. I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, I there's probably not a whole lot of six and one teams around the country that the fan base is still this perplexed by, but we got one of them. So I'm I'm curious because we're we're getting to the point now where the college football playoff rankings are going to start coming out, and it turns into I mean it's already a discussion weekly, but then you're going to have the Tuesday night ESPN show. Oregon's going to be in the headlines for that. When you guys were going through this in 2014, like how aware were you of just all of that outside stuff as you guys were in the middle? And, and granted, in 2014, it was the first year of the playoff too, so that was all brand new. But like, how does that all play within the locker room? Oh, it's definitely something people are aware of, um, and, and it's kind of hard not to think about it, um, just because you know that is what you're working towards from the start of camp all the way through the season, but. Uh, I feel like when I was there, we, we did a pretty good job of just winning the day, um, as cliche <laughs> as it is, but, uh, just focusing on one thing at a time and, and just knowing we have a talented team. Um, and if we, we string together wins, when we look up at the end of the season, we're going to be in the right place. It's, uh, it's kind of hard to figure out how, like what tone to write and, and podcast with, with, with this team, because you and I both know there are definitely some uh, inefficiencies on this team and, and, you know, whether it be uh, the inconsistencies at quarterback or the injuries or, or whatnot. And so I, I feel like every week we've been coming on here and kind of voicing our, or airing our grievances. But again, as, as we let out with they're six and one, they keep winning. And especially in a year where the PAC 12 is uh, you know, we, we have Kyle Bonagura on from ESPN uh, after this, and, and he kind of talks about the, overwhelming state of mediocrity in the conference um Oregon Oregon may be playing mediocre football at times but they're still winning so I I don't know like how like do you think that I've been riding with like the right tone on this because I've been reaching man (laughs) yeah I think so I I think it's it's important and it's really hard to do as a fan but it's important to just not get too high or too low um with what happens because you see I mean, I guess I'm really just thinking about Twitter here, but I just, I feel like I see <laughs> Twitter's the world, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> I feel like I see such big swings in the takes, you know, you have people booing Anthony Brown and calling for him to be benched and then plays a much better game this last week at UCLA. And then you have people <laughs> singing his praises and talking about how well he's throwing the ball. Uh, and I think, this applies week to week. And also when you get to the end of the season and look back, it's, 
it's usually not as good or bad as it feels at the time. And, you know, it's, it's great that Oregon's six and one, but obviously we want to take that with a grain of salt, given the performances we've seen against Cal and Arizona. But uh, I, I think being six and one at this point in the season, I think if Oregon keeps playing decent football, they're, they're probably going to look back at the end of the season and, and be in a place that they're proud to be. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's one of those things too, where, you know, I, I don't think they're going to make the playoff, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to be surprised, but this is going to end up being one of those seasons where when you kind of look back through like the, the yearly records, like they're going to end up being, you know, 10 and two, nine and three, like you're going to look back and say, this was a really good year. And it will just be funny that most of the talk had been negative around the team. And, and that's something that I've, uh, you know, I'm not a homer. I'm not trying to make them look good. But like when you kind of like take a step back away from like the the consume, how, how consumed you can get by the quarterback playing the offense, it's like there's a lot of pieces on this team that like need to be appreciated, like starting with like Kayvon Thibodeau's just incredible performance whenever he's actually been able to play or or Verone McKinley um, and, or just like the way that that Oregon secondary has been able to uh, create chaos and, and make really timely plays. But uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a weird, weird, weird year. Yeah. And I don't think that it's necessarily a good thing if Oregon makes the playoff this year. And I, I know that might sound, that might sound a little crazy, but I understand that we have a lot of talent and, and fans are anxious to really utilize that talent and get the most out of it. Um, and I think that's some of why people are so quick to want to replace Anthony Brown is because they see the talent this team has and they think, oh, if we could just get a spark, we could sneak into the playoff. But I mean, if Oregon plays Georgia in the playoff, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I mean, I'm, I think Oregon's a good team, but I don't see that ending too well for them. And, and I think fans are, have gotten a little carried away about if we throw Ty Thompson in there, you know, what if we have the next Herbert sitting on the bench and we just don't know it till that change gets made. But I was looking back at the, the 2016 schedule and Herbert definitely, he played his heart out that season and really did put up some good numbers, but I mean, over the the seven games he started to finish the season, I believe there were only two Oregon wins in there. Right. So uh, I think that just because people might want a change to be made, I don't think that necessarily translates to the the Cinderella story everyone's hoping for, where Oregon runs the table convincingly, wins the conference, and sneaks into that final playoff spot. Yeah, that's that's the thing is because basically people want the change because they think that if they make the change, that's going to be what puts Oregon over the top. And almost all freshman quarterbacks are going to have at least one game or two where they're just figuring things out. And if at this point they've been so cautious of, of going to Thompson in the first place, like what makes people think that within what are there five games left that he's going to have five perfect games going forward? Like, you know, I, I don't think it doesn't help, obviously, that I, I think people are pointing to like what's happened at Oklahoma with uh, uh, Caleb Williams coming in and just looking like the best player in college football. But I mean, these are these are very, very, very rare examples of players that I mean, Caleb Williams might end up being one of the best players in the country by the end of the year, if, if not next year. It's just not like I think Ty Thompson is good. I think he's going to be good. I think the Oregon coaches believe in him. But you know, I, I think at some point we got to kind of just start trusting what the coaches are saying, you know? Yeah, I definitely think so. And 
So I want to ask you this, at what point, like how competitive do you think you need to be in the playoff for it to not set your brand back nationally? Because I think there, I think there can be a point where like, let's say there's an Alabama or a Georgia and they beat Oregon 49, 14 in the playoffs. Does that in terms of recruiting and just, on the national stage, does that cause you to take a little bit of a step back in people's minds? I mean, it, it, it very well could because Oregon's at a point where they're recruiting against all of those teams now. And so if, if Oregon's in, in an example where they're playing an Alabama or a Georgia in the playoff and they do get beat out, like those teams are going to use that to recruit against the Ducks. And um, not only are they like going after, you know, you have a lot of those SEC teams coming in and, and recruiting out of California. But since Cristobal took over, the Ducks have definitely recruited a lot more in the southeast there. And, um, you know, give this team credit when they've played big games, they've always usually shown up. You can point to the two Pac-12 championship games. You can point to the Ohio State game. You can point to um, the Washington game in 2018 when they won at home. Uh, to beat number seven Washington they've, they've like always been either they've won those games or they've been competitive in them and I just I don't think that they would be competitive against a Georgia or Alabama right now I definitely don't think so either and and to your point earlier I think all this all the frustration and the question marks that have gone on this year you know if they finish nine ten wins I think we're gonna look back at that uh hopefully in a couple years uh, when Oregon is really in the thick of the playoff race and just say that was another year where they weren't quite there, but Cristobal was building towards it. And then that's ultimately going to be part of uh, what does get them over the hump. One thing I want to ask you, and again, we have, we have Kyle Bonagura from ESPN coming on after this. Uh, he, he had a piece up today, kind of the behind the scenes of what happened with Nick Rolovich at, at Washington state. And uh, one, one of the things that you end up asking them is, is just how the players responded to that. And um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and, you know, this is a completely different situation, but in, in 2016, the, the rumor mill around Mark Helfrich really started about halfway through the year about whether or not he was going to get fired, this or that. Like, like, what's it like being in the locker room when your coach is in the headlines almost as much as, as the team is? It's a, it's a really strange situation because you kind of second guess a lot of the things they say a little bit. Oh, really? Interesting. uh, So I want to clarify that a little bit. So (laughs) you got two sentences in, man. (laughs) So uh, to be in charge of a division one football program, you got a lot of things going on. Um, You know, generally you're a pretty experienced coach. People, people trust your judgment. When, when you say things confidently, they believe it. But at a certain point when things aren't going very well, you kind of start wondering, like, right. does this guy believe what he's saying? You know, you have a tough loss, uh, a couple tough losses, and your coaching staff's in meetings saying, like, we know we have the right guys. We just need to clean some stuff up. Uh, but when things get bad, you start to wonder what they really think about it. And, and when there's there's added uh, pressure from the media and there's speculation. It's, it just kind of can cause a little bit of a rift in the team um, in the, from the players from each other and the players to the coaches. So it definitely does present an additional challenge. Well, well at least your guys' thing was just 
based on uh, team performance and not whether or not, I mean, the, the Rolovich thing has, has just turned into probably the biggest Pac-12 story of the year, um, which either is a indictment on how weird of a story it is or, or how average the Pac-12 overall play has been outside of Oregon and maybe Oregon State. I Let's actually move on to that real quick because I did not think Oregon State was going to beat Utah in that game. Utah has been playing awfully well, and, and that seems like it's a game that maybe the Beavers lose as they're ramping up to something, but now they're five and two. Uh, I think if they win again this week, they might crack into the top 25. Like we might have a really fun Oregon, Oregon state game here in a month from now, dude. Yeah. I almost think they, they could be in the top 25 already and they got votes. Uh, yeah. And I, I grew up honestly not being a huge football fan. Um, I, I kind of always liked Oregon better than Oregon state, but I would always root for both schools to do well. Uh, and the prospect of having a civil war um, with more than bragging rights on the line or, or more than Oregon State trying to spoil Oregon's season is definitely an exciting prospect. Yeah, this is this is the the best start for both of these teams where they've been either 6-1 and one or 5-2 uh, and two since I believe the tw- it's either the 2013 or 2012 season. So it's been a very long time since both teams kind of mattered nationally in a good way. Um, and, and I really think this kind of highlights what could be a, a, a shift in kind of the power dynamics of at least the PAC 12 North, because, you know, if, if you go back and look at Oregon's traditional rivals from when they were really playing well, like back in your years, it was Stanford. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was Washington, Washington so much at that point, cause they were kind of struggling, but like, that was always kind of the, the team they wanted to beat. But I don't think Stanford, I don't know. I, I think David Shaw's a great coach. I just don't know if that team's ever going to be as nationally relevant as they were that long ago. Um, Washington State doesn't, I mean, Washington State's a mess right now. Uh, Cal is really struggling, which we all kind of thought they were going to be a team that took a step forward with, with Justin Wilcox and, and they're still up in the air. Um, yeah, I mean, like it, it, this could actually turn into not only a, what's considered a natural rivalry, but this could turn into a, a competitive rivalry as well. Yeah. I think Jonathan Smith has done an awesome job and I know you got the opportunity to interview him earlier in the year. Um, but it's, I think it's really good timing for them. You know, they, they made a good hire there, their new head coach and, and they're building something. And I think it's, it's really playing to their advantage that the PAC 12 is a mess right now. And, and that's really allowing them to, to stack up some good wins. And I think they can definitely build on this moving forward in future years. So how, how bummed have you been about Dame's start so far? Oh, it's been hard to watch, especially, (laughs) especially because at least in the first game, there were some real improvements from the bench unit defensively, which is one of the biggest issues coming into the year. But I mean, I don't think anyone's too worried about it. It'll straighten itself out eventually. Yeah, I'm not so worried about Dame, but like you'd kind of want like the overall product to be looking. I mean, and again, this is where are they three games into the year. Like it, it's all like overreaction central. But, um, you know, that's kind of just what happens whenever you keep the main nucleus of your team and, and you change coaches like you, you kind of want that spark right away. And so far, it's been a very uh, much. Well, you would think they're going to get back going, right? You know? Yeah, the uh, the loss to the Clippers the other night was was especially tough because it just felt like there were so many unforced errors and bad turnovers. There were just errant passes all over the place. Um, 
but at any time you have a new coach, uh, you know, he's got to adjust to the players, to his staff. They've got to adjust to him. Um, you know, I, I feel like we should wait till maybe like game 20, 25 to draw any real illusions, but, uh, I, I think they'll get it figured out. And, and I think the, the defensive improvement is starting to show a little bit, although it hasn't the whole time yet, but they're showing flashes and I think they'll be able to get there. I mean, at least they have like a bunch of like young pieces that have worked well together and, and yeah, you think they'd, could start working better. Like if I was a Lakers fan right now and I'm just seeing that team look as old as they are, like I would be more worried in, in that scenario than, than maybe the Blazers. I, granted the Lakers are probably a better team than the Blazers are right now, but the expectations are completely different between those pro, or franchises as well. Yeah, the, the Lakers look like a 2009 all-star team. <laughs> yeah, they do. Like they, they, I just, they, I don't, I don't see how that team is going to win and make a deep playoff run. Like, obviously they have talent, but I, I just have to think that LeBron is past the point in his career physically where he can just take over games for extended periods of time. And, and I think a lot of the guys they have to rely on just don't have the shooting that you need to have success. That, that was the thing is I, I was trying to think of like what sort of like galaxy brain logic he was using because I mean obviously they trade for the wet for Westbrook they're not making that trade unless like LeBron approves and Westbrook may be the one shooter in the entire NBA where when he shoots from behind the three you're like oh thank god (laughs) yes please take that shot please take that shot don't go just dunk it down our faces like yes settle for those outside shots for us uh don't you think it's ridiculous to look back uh even during that OKC series when people were saying Russ was better than Dame. Just blasphemous. Not only Russ better than Dame, but like you can even like look back like five or six years ago when when Russ and uh, KD were playing together and it was like, oh, who's the better player out of that? Like KD is going to be like a top five player ever. And not to take anything away from Russ, who's had a really marvelous career, but definitely saying different strat- different stratosphere there. Yeah, I've always thought about Russ. The, the triple doubles are great, but what a triple double is supposed to represent, you think that would make you win more. And <laughs> right. this felt to me like when do you ever see him make a hockey assist where he, he makes a good pass, there's some ball movement, and someone knocks down an open shot? It feels like every assist he ever has is just passed to a shot which feels like it doesn't work past the the third quarter of games. You, you've been podcasting with me too long, man. You're getting you're getting the hockey league, ling, lingo in here. Um, <laughs> oh, the, the other thing I was going to ask you, like st- sticking on Dame, uh, he was named to the 75-75 team last week. It's the NBA's 75th anniversary. They named him one of the best 75 players of all time, which I don't have an argument against it, but it kind of shocked me that he was included. How about you? Uh, I, I thought he would be a borderline guy, but I, I think it's well-deserved. I think it's, it's a bit unfortunate that Portland hasn't be able, been able to field rosters for him to really compete for championships in his career, but That's to get the all NBA recognition he has gotten, um, has been huge. And I think that people really recognize that if you put him in a different situation, like switch him with some other stars, he could easily have two, three, four championships by this point. 
is he has he had a better career than Oregonian Clay Thompson? I I would say so, definitely. Yeah, he's 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 a better player. Like Clay's in that situation too, where he's kind of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Because I I don't know if Clay could carry a team, but also like he was Clay Thompson is so criminally underrated. I feel like, and and you just have to go back to how many points did he score in that third quarter? That one, I mean. I don't know if anybody can get hotter than that guy, but he's just a just a different. I think he's a good kind of one B player to a one A like Dame. Yeah, I I mean, I would love to have Clay on the Blazers, um, but I, I think it just puts you like it puts Dame in that different category where Clay's been an amazing player, but you know he's not Steph Curry, he's right. not. He's not the guy every defense is keying in on. And that that definitely uh that's not to say it makes his job easy. He's still getting a lot of defense thrown his way, but I think it's uh really puts you on another level when you're the number one guy defenses are focusing on and you can still go out and put up those big numbers. You going to the game Saturday? I am. Any Why you? <laughs> is isn't it supposed to I mean I'll I'll be nice and sheltered. It'll be nice nice up in that press box. I I think it's supposed to be pretty wet out there, dude. Well, I haven't even looked yet. Got you weren't on the team. Did, did you did you ever see that? Uh, and, and granted, like you played in your fair share of rainy games, but remember that? I think it was like the 2013 Oregon versus Cal like monsoon game. I I remember watching that one on TV and just being like, oh, my God, that looks miserable. And then this week, all they've been talking about is like the bomb cyclone weather pattern coming through. And there, there's part of me that just wants to see the world burn and, and have it be just a full on monsoon out there. But um, that could make a game where a team like Oregon, that's far more talented than Colorado ends up being a lot closer than it should be. Yeah. Hopefully that doesn't happen. I remember watching that game on TV too. And that is an absolute specialist nightmare, <laughs> especially I, I feel bad for the specialists on that team. Cause that was back in the, the Scott Frost, no sleeve rule days. <laughs> right. Did did you ever like have games where you're just like, oh my god, like please don't let me have to go out? Oh yeah, there there were a good portion of cold and wet games where I would pretty much just sit for the entirety of the game on the heated benches and just kind of stretch a little bit on there and warm up and go straight out onto the field and then right back to the bench. Did you guys have the pop up bathrooms when you were playing? Uh, I think we did my last year. But that's, that's got to be like the most awkward thing ever, right? Because like you, you are confined, but you are technically like peeing in front of like 60,000. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting way off track here. <laughs> so it's a bit strange for sure, but it's uh, it's better than the alternative. Well, that's that's probably the best way to segue into our interview with Kyle coming up. Uh, thanks <laughs> again, everyone, for listening. Um, and here's Kyle Bonagura. Now on the I-5 corridor, we welcome on Kyle Bonagura from ESPN. He has a story out today on Nick Rolovich inside his firing. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly well-reported uh, piece up on ESPN today. Uh, Kyle, I imagine this has been uh, uh, a stressful, uh, a stressful period to be to be reporting on uh, what has randomly turned into probably the biggest Pac-12 story of the year outside of media ochre football play all around <laughs> like how are you doing man yeah no it's been well first of all thanks for having me guys and yeah certainly a a bizarre story to have to report about i don't think when you get into sports journalism you're trying to uh you, you expect anything like this to come um, you know come on your plate but since 
you know, since, uh, since 2020 and beyond where, where we've been kind of faced with these sort of issues to kind of deal with. And yeah, the reporting process for this was, was stressful, right? I mean, there's a lot of people with very strong opinions about how this should have played out and trying to, um, you know, wade through all that and kind of learn more about um, Rolovich's state of mind throughout this, what the university's stance was and like the lengths they went to educate him about, you know, the vaccination process, the legal aspects. There's a lot of, a lot of things to sift through and um, I'm proud of the, the work that the, me and my editors were able to do in, in um, you know, publishing a compelling story about some stuff that, uh, you know, the general public wasn't privy to before today. So you you've been reporting this thing like as it's been going on, but this is kind of like the the bone or the tying it all together piece. As you were you were you were reporting this one, what was what was the part that kind of struck you the most, or fascinated you the most, or or was kind of just the most compelling part of of this this piece that you put out? So one of the the one of the main questions I think a lot of people have had throughout this whole saga is you know why like why is it worth it to Nick Rolovich? to um to pass on getting a vaccine that 93 percent of his players received when he's got a three million dollar salary he's got a, a bunch of coaches relying on him he's got a bunch of players relying on him um you know what's going on to where he decided um it, it was a it was a trade-off he was willing to make right and you know i think for people who've read the story the the one part that hadn't necessarily been illuminated previously is um you know his well certainly the his his conversation with guy palmer who's a world-renowned you know regents professor at wcu of pathology and infectious diseases he's a you know a vaccine expert one of the most pro you know one of the most respected academics on campus uh rolovich had an opportunity to speak with him in april um it was arranged by athletic director uh, Pat Chun and they talked for about an hour over Zoom and and the, the line of questioning from Rolovich to Palmer was a lot of um, a lot of stuff you see in on social media from the uh, you know as Palmer puts it from the anti-vax crowd. I mean he asked him is Bill Gates involved with the vaccine? Does he hold a patent on the on the vaccine? Is SV40 this this old uh, virus that contaminated polio, polio vaccines in the 50s and 60s? Is it in uh, the COVID vaccine. So I, I, I thought that really spoke to Rolovich's um, state of mind and 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 uh, his just kind of how he feels about vaccines in general. To have an, an audience with uh, like an, an academic of Palmer standing, you would think you would trust um, what he tells you, and ultimately he he didn't and and sought a religious exemption. All of that was new, and I thought that 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 provided some interesting insight into where Rolovich's where his head was throughout this whole process. What I found striking in there was also just, and and you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but you know Washington State is really trying to promote it's 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 put a ton of money into its its health and medical schools and all that sort of thing and so um it, it really just seemed like it was like, like a clashing of of ideologies between you know the coach and, and what the university was trying to present itself as as well yeah and that's been a big part of this for the university and i talked with several faculty members and the the stance was pretty clear that there's a like a resounding sense of embarrassment that here's a, a university that has recently opened up a medical school is, is building out its health and sciences programs um, and to have their most high profile employee, the highest paid employee in the state of Washington um, to deliver a different message over a extended period of time 
that's a pro that's a problem for a research university, right? You can't have your most high profile employee sending a different message into the world than what your what your experts in your medical school uh, are, are are trying to to say, right? And so it's a delicate dance that the school had to play throughout the whole process. I thought that they did about as good a job as as they could have um, keeping their messaging firm while also letting the uh, the exemption request process play out, and then ultimately, um, you know, dismissing Rolovich in the four assistants on Monday. They had, they were very buttoned up with their, um, you know, the policies and and how to proceed from a legal standpoint. You know, as I lay out in the story a little bit, Rolovich will be filing a lawsuit at some point, and the other assistant coaches as well. It'll be interesting to see what kind of case they have because the school had a lot of time to. Uh, make sure that it had all its bases covered in stucks in a row sort of stuff, right? They waited for um, the Supreme Court to uphold Indiana University's Supreme Court, uh, Indiana University's um, vaccine mandate on its campus. And there was a, you know, a lot of things that were taken into account. So it's, you know, this isn't over by any means. Um, this is probably going to get uglier before um, Rolovich in, in Washington State aren't going to be intersecting in the public eye. But um, certainly a, you know, fascinating, um, fascinating, I guess, course of events, regardless of kind of what your beliefs are regarding how it played out. So this has been a story that uh, a lot of people have been following that's unfolded over a number of months at this point with Rolovich kind of playing this weird cat and mouse game with, with the school, with the media saying, yes, of course I'm going to comply. I'm going to do everything I need to do. Um, but as a as a player with that, especially with a vaccine mandate looming, um, it must be incredibly hard to focus. What was your sense of how players felt about that when they they really didn't know if their coach was going to be their coach in the next weeks or or months? Yeah, uh, th for me, that's the, one of the more unfortunate parts about this whole thing, right? Is these players were really dragged into something that it's not their fault. They wanted to, they went to Washington state to play football and have a, a college experience. And, you know, through October 18th, that, that deadline was lingering over the whole team and, and over the season, right? Like what was going to happen was Rolovich going to be the coach after the Stanford game. And so, I mean, I, I, Rolovich does have a, a reputation as being a player's coach. I mean, you know, everyone that I talked to and all the players who spoke publicly, on the player side, all were very supportive of him, right? As a as a guy, like there's you, I mean, I haven't heard anyone to have anything bad to say about him as a person and how he treats people, right? And I think that's important to understand here. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure that there are are, are some of them wondering, well, like, listen, like all of us did it, you know, we've got a they've there's a there's a mandate for for students as well at Washington State. Rolovich has preached doing things for the team, right? And being on board for, for, for the team, you know, and, and he didn't follow that in his own life, right? There was a very easy solution for this whole mess to be avoided. And that was for Nick Rolovich and his assistant coaches to be vaccinated. You know, the players um, are coming from a place where that's their guy. Some of them were recruited by him. He definitely uh, did a good job of ingratiating him to himself to most of the, most of the team when he arrived and, you know, they don't want to see him go from a personal standpoint. So I, I think it's probably hard to separate those two things. Right. How much do you think kind of going a little bit bigger picture here? Um, they're going to need a new coach. That coach is going to need a new staff. Um, you know, the Oregon message boards like to talk about the fact that 
uh, nearly half of Oregon staff was at one time poached from Washington State. And they also have an offensive coordinator in Joe Moorhead, whose name gets floated here or there. Um, one, what, 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 what do you think happens next in terms of their coaching search? And two, like, like, do you think it's going to be somebody that's pulled out of the Pac-12 or, or what, what happens next or have they even gotten to that part yet? Yeah, I mean, last I had checked in, it really hadn't gotten to that point yet. And I, and I don't have a good feel of how that's going to go. I mean, like, I don't think necessarily anything changes about how the search operates. I think you look at it like any other search, right? Just because there was just bizarre circumstances to end, you know, the, the former coach's tenure doesn't mean that the the program and what the, the types of attributes you would look for are necessarily different than the last time around. Maybe the vetting process is a little bit different. Maybe you try to reassure yourself of, of certain things, but you know, I don't, you know, I, I think Moorhead, you know, as an example, he makes sense, right? Here's a guy who's had some success in the conference. Now he's you know had success as a coordinator, other places has head coaching experience, which is very important to Pat Chun. Like, I'm not saying that he's like a candidate, you know, today right. on October 27th, but like that, that's a profile of someone who would make a lot of sense at a place like Washington state. Have you been a, been able to watch any Pac-12 football <laughs> or like, like outside <laughs> of this, like, like what interests you about this season so far? I mean, l- listen, after last year, I'm just happy that, that we're playing. It's a, it's a regular year. Right. And, you know, there's fans in the stands and you're able to go to games. I didn't go to a college football game last year. And that's the first time that's happened in you know well over a decade. Um, so to have some, some, some normalcy with that is just like, it's good to have that back. It almost feels like it's all gravy at this point. And you can really appreciate, you know, you can appreciate watching a crappy Arizona team play a, you know, a crappy Washington team and like, enjoy it, even though it's bad football, just cause football's on and there's people in the stand. So for me, like anything beyond that is, uh, you know, doesn't really matter as much as it maybe it would have been under under normal circumstances you know obviously the conference has underperformed and underachieved and has been disappointing as a whole you know you know washington in particular has been really surprising and and, and disappointing you know oregon even though they're uh you know a top 10 team right now i think there's a lot of frustration about some of the performance that have, have kind of popped up since that ohio state game as well so as 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 us out here on the west coast would like to to see them relevant in the in the playoff discussion i'm still a little bit hesitant to i'm, I'm not fully convinced that they're going to be able to, to to make a run through this final stretch of the year without without losing another game or two but after that it's there's really not that many intriguing teams this year there's not a whole lot of intriguing individual players and you know as for all the um, you know, for all the, the lack of success that the Pac-12 has had kind of at the national level, playoff level type type deal, there's there's always been a lot of really intriguing players individually in the league. And, you know, there, is, there are some this year. It just doesn't feel like it's at that same level that it was in years past, right? I mean, Drake London's a good example of a guy who's maybe the best receiver in, in all of college football, but, you know, doing it on a bad USC team for an interim coach, right? So it kind of um, limits how much you can appreciate what's going on with a player like him. Like what's this conference's brand now? Like, is, is it offense? Is it, you know, there was, there was a period where it was quarterbacks, like, or is this, or is this conference just kind of running around and in, in, in search of something? Yeah. I don't think it has a brand, right? I mean, you look up and down, like I got the standings pulled up right now and there's nothing about the way the conference is structured right now to make you like, feel like, Oh, this is what you're, this is what you're going to get when you watch a PAC 12 football game. Like that just doesn't exist right now. Um, you know, there's still a lot of good coaches in the league who have done a lot of good things in their careers, but like, you know, Stanford's three and four, you know, 
you know, UCLA had that LSU win that looked good at the time. They're five and three. USC has a losing record right now. Arizona hasn't won since 2019. So, I mean, there's <laughs> like Washington is, has a losing record. Cal is, is, has one win against an FBS team, Colorado, like, do they even have an offense? So like, it's hard to find things to get really excited about in the conference right now. And that's like, like, even when, even when the conference didn't have a team in the top five or, or contending for the playoff, there was a lot of, you know, teams in that like 12 to 25 range. Like you could have five ranked pack 12 teams, but like still not be in the playoff mix. And that was still allowed there to be a lot of really exciting football you know, and that's just not the case right now. So I, and these things are cyclical, right? Like, I, like, I don't have any like long-term concerns about the PAC 12, like, like once the playoff expands, which is inevitable, I think that will keep, uh, keep the conference relevant later in the year nationally. And I think that's good. And we'll keep, you know, have a better chance of keeping some kids at home just because you know that there's a pathway to the playoff and keeps teams relevant for longer, but you know, let's, if, if we're being objective, there's not a whole lot to like right now. So I imagine, I, I mean, obviously I would imagine that you're going to be, be following up and reporting out the, the, the rest of the Rolovich story, wherever it goes. Yeah. I think it becomes a news story the rest of the way, right. There's, you know, there will be an appeals process um, th- for the coaches who are fired and those appeals have to be filed by November 2nd. I'm not sure like how it gets sorted out after that, but say maybe give it a couple of weeks for that to be kind of solidified. And then once that's done and dusted, then you'll have the, um, the civil litigation from, um, from Brian failing, who's, who's representing Rolovich and the three of the assistant coaches. And that'll be certainly be a news story. Once the complaint drops um, on that, I'm sure there will be a lot of details from that's, that's when, uh, you know, that's when Rolovich will be kind of free to speak, I think he's been in communication with the lawyer for um, several months now. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that he didn't expand upon his, um, his beliefs throughout this whole process. I think that's one of the, been one of the more frustrating things for a lot of people is like, he just hasn't, you know, he obviously feels very strongly about this, right? He was willing to sacrifice a, a power five coaching job, a $3 million salary. And a lot of people were attached to him that were had their lives impacted as well. So like he clearly feels strongly about it. I don't think anyone can argue that, but it, it's, it's tough to reconcile that with the fact that he just wasn't willing to talk about it. Right. If you felt so strongly about it, like, like if I felt so strongly about something to, to that level, I, I feel like I would be happy to discuss it. And he wasn't and hasn't been. And I feel like that's part of the legal strategy that will, uh, will only change once a complaint has been filed. I think that's kind of the the frustrating part is I don't know what the guy believed in. So like I, I you know, it's, it was hard to kind of feel for him when when basically he he was given nothing or giving nothing out there and being so, as Aiden said earlier, cat and mouse mouse with it. It's it's honestly one of one of the stranger Pac-12 stories that I can remember. And, and we've we've certainly had some weird ones over the years. Yeah. And I would extend it beyond the Pac-12. I would <laughs> extend it beyond college football. I mean, this is one of the weirdest intersections of like politics and sports that you know we've seen anywhere in the last several years just it's so bizarre that this is where we're at um an unfathomable series of events you know just a, you know a couple of years ago what was it working was he a, did they consider him a good hire before all this mess started i think so i mean yeah. i thought it was a good hire when it happened me too they their offense at, at Hawaii was a lot of fun to watch. You know, his, you know, I thought his uh, personality played well in Pullman initially. I thought the riding around on the bike 
you know, touring the, the, the town for recruits was, you know, was, was fun and different and was a, there was a personality there. Um, and I think he was really well received in the town of Pullman initially too. Right. And there was, you know, there's, you know, there was the, the situation with Cassidy Woods um, where he, there was, you know, they were in conflict over the Pac-12 unity group that rubbed some people the wrong way. And I certainly think he probably would have handled it differently on, on a, on another approach. So that's kind of one way he would have been dinged last year, but you know, other, and then some of the, just his refusal to talk about COVID at times, you know, a lot of people weren't really thrilled with that either, but like Mike Leach wouldn't have talked about COVID either. Right. He wouldn't have talked about injuries or any of those things either. And for the most part was, was pretty well appreciated because he won football games. And I, I don't think you can ding, Rolovich for his one and three record last year, like last year didn't really matter. Right. It, there was the, the, the oddities of the year made any of the on-field stuff just so difficult to place any value in. And so I think this really was setting up to be, I was like, all right, this was really his first year. Um, and listen, they've, they've, they, I mean, they lost at Utah state to start the year and that was bad. And they had the embarrassing showing against USC, but then they played some pretty good football. They won three straight, I mean, even against BYU, they, they lost that game, but, and I thought they played pretty well, especially considering the circumstances of replacing, you know, th- three offensive coaches leading up to the game. So, I mean, I thought the, on the on-field product was, was going to be fine. I mean, they were definitely going to go to a bowl game and, and certainly, you know, they're only, they're still only half game back in the North. Right. So they could still theoretically win the PAC 12. Like that's not, we've seen crazier things happen in this conference. So from a football standpoint, I think you you couldn't, there wasn't really a whole much, a whole lot to nitpick there. Yeah. Well, shoot, Kyle, we we really, really appreciate you taking the time. I know this has probably been, you know, anytime you have a a story like this up, I'm sure it's been a crazy day for you, but we we really appreciate you taking the time and and everyone make sure you you check out his story on ESPN.com. He's on Twitter at Bonagura ESPN. Uh, Kyle, um, thanks so much, man. No, appreciate you guys having me and um, good luck getting this thing off the ground. I've been listening and hopefully you guys uh, keep uh, keep building off the early uh, success that you've had. Yeah, man, we're we're, we're taking on the world. We're uh, we're coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) There's only so many freeways. So, all right. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Kyle. Appreciate it. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.